Hey, Build listeners. My name is Meg Johnson, and I'm a multimedia marketer at OpenView. While we ramp up the next season of Build, over the next few weeks, you can enjoy a new short podcast series we've titled Building to Last. We've connected with people who have built SaaS companies through the limitations and challenges of a crisis and asked their advice on how they would advise CEOs today. By interviewing industry experts at the forefront of this battle, we look to empower founders, CEOs, and SaaS builders to stay strong and take advantage of the changing landscape of tech. And to come through this crisis, not only afloat, but thriving on the other side. This episode is hosted by OpenView's in-house expert, George Roberts. He interviews Graham Smith about his time at Salesforce working through the Great Recession. Here's what they had to say. You and I have known each other a, a long time, longer than anyone else like to admit. <laughs> from uh, from Oracle, and later you continued to be having a very successful career and, and ended up being a CFO at Salesforce starting in 2007. That was right before we had the recession of 2008 and 2009. And looking to just kind of understand as CFO, how you worked with Mark to kind of navigate through the recession at the time. And then later we'll talk about how some of those lessons might make sense in today's current chaos with COVID-19 and everything. Yeah. Happy to do that, George. Maybe I'll start with just sort of high level. I think I think it's important sort of early on to, to make some kind of assessment of whether your products are sort of a discretionary type spend or a really necessary type of spend. I think we all recognize some, some technologies are far more critical to purchase during tough times as well as good times. Others are more the kind of spend where you know, people do them when it's a nice to have. So I think if you can, that that's a, sort of something I think everybody should keep in their minds. Clearly for Salesforce, we were at scale. So I think we all felt confident we were an app that everybody wanted to continue to use during tough times, albeit possibly at lower levels. So I think, I think if you're in the SaaS business, you have a little bit of a luxury of time. So, you know, in the old days that you and I lived in at Oracle, you know, you clearly had to move really quickly with upfront revenue recognition. You had to make decisions uh, a lot quicker than in today's world where you have, as I say, a, a little bit of a luxury of time to really look at what the data is telling you. What's the business data telling you around all kinds of different vectors, whether it's you know new business, existing customers, renewals, pipeline, all those metrics you should be studying hard. So I think once you know the first point of focus is always cash in a crisis like this. So I think before you really look at anything else, you've got to build a plan that makes sense from your liquidity profile point of view, and then you have to figure out whether you need to secure you know funding from whatever source might be available. And to do that, you've obviously got to come up with some different scenarios. And I I generally think you know minimally you need sort of three scenarios you know, a worst, a middle, and a best case. And some companies I'm working with now have, have more than that. Let's say you have, you have three. And I think, uh, obviously, there's a lot of guesswork involved, but I don't think that means you can just, I don't think you can come up with a, with a forecast, a realistic forecast based on just your intuition. So I think it's important that companies slice and dice their customer base, both from a new business, an add-on business, and a renewals business as many ways as they can. And so whether that's enterprise versus SMB, whether it's different verticals, because clearly in today's world, some verticals are hit a lot harder than others. It could be a geo cut, but again, I would just sort of encourage people to 
to take as many different cuts of their business as they can, roll them up based on clearly some guesswork, and then see where they come out rather than just trying to, you know, guess a number oh will be down X percent. I don't I don't think is a good a good path. And then once you've done each of those scenarios, then I think you can build your headcount scenarios and your your expense scenarios that match the revenue scenario. And and more importantly, at the end of that comes out a you know hopefully a cash flow forecast for the rest of the year, and then you can you can move forward based on that. So I, I think that's you know that's the approach we took at Salesforce. And I think early on it looked as though we'd suffer a little bit of a downturn in business, and indeed we did. But it wasn't anywhere near as severe as might have been expected. And I think as a result, the company was able to minimize really any disruption to its its workforce and its customers. So in other words, Graham, do the data analysis at a granular level, right? And many different cuts as you can, and then use that to build your assumptions going forward and come out with a cash flow and determine kind of how you move the company through the crisis, hopefully with a minimum amount of disruption within the company, as well as obviously the customer base and, and partner base and everything else. You know, as you went through those scenarios, you know, how did you and Mark kind of weigh the competing areas on kind of where to adjust? Because obviously you adjust you know, expenses somewhere when you get into a situation like this, right? Because as you said, cash is king. You've got to make sure the company is solvent because without cash, you can't have people and you, without people, you can't have a company. So how did you balance the, the competing areas of sales and marketing and development and customer success as you went through that analysis? Yeah, I think that's that's one of the toughest areas. I think there are some cuts that you can make early on that make sense. And, and I would generally advocate until you've gone through a whole quarter, I think it's prudent to just stop, stop hiring. Just, you know, until you get to the end of that first quarter and you can really get a better sense of where things are going. But once you have, let's say, some early data points supporting one of your scenarios, I think, you, you know, there's a number of different ways you can adjust expenses that are across the board. So clearly, you know, the obvious one today, T&E, you know, <laughs> a very different profile. That's an easy... That's an easy score to put on the board. But then you can do things like, you know, let's either reduce or eliminate pay rises for everybody for the next 12 months. I mean, those are relatively painless changes that you can make that have a very big impact on your overall expense base. You can clearly push headcount out without necessarily uh, taking those heads away. You can, you know, suspend a lot of infrastructure projects, the ones that aren't really critical to the success of the business. So I'd say look at the common across across the company type expenses first. Then I think what you're left with is an envelope to potentially continue hiring. And then I think there's sort of two, it's sort of really, I'd say GNA is an easy one. You know, you should basically, I think, be freezing GNA headcount um, as much as you possibly can. It doesn't really scale with revenue. It doesn't really impact fundamentally customer service, so I think that's an easy an easy one to to put on the board. Beyond that, I think if you look at the functions that have to at some level scale with customer service, so I'm talking particularly about support and potentially consulting if you've got those going on, I think you've got to be realistic. You can put a little bit of tension in those numbers, but I don't think you want your customers to start to really feel that they're being underserved. So I think you have to be very careful about adjusting headcount in those functions that scale with the number of customers you have. And then you kind of end up with sales and marketing and, and engineering. And I think those are those will differ by company. And certainly at Salesforce at the time, we continue to 
press pretty hard on engineering. And with sales, we probably, and Mark has said this publicly, I think we probably were under aggressive actually on sales in the end because the rebound from that recession was pretty quick. And so debatably, we could have just carried on with our sales hiring and come out of it at a little high level. But I think you have to balance that with today's world. This is a whole new type of recession with with so many people unemployed. I think you have to be, I think you have to look at productivity numbers. I don't personally think you can bank sales capacity and expect that salespeople will be happy being unproductive for long periods of time. So I would say be very careful about taking on extra sales, headcount or marketing headcount. Clearly, if there's if there's no demand really created by the programs of the company, it's no point in just continuing to try and execute on them. And I'd say the one area where I'd, I'd always be reluctant or lost to cut is probably engineering. And I think some companies that I'm hearing from even today are looking at their go-to-market and saying, okay, this is a new reality. Maybe we should be making changes to the product based on what we're seeing that will actually help us come out of this situation better and faster. So they might be in the area of sort of self-service onboarding type capabilities of products. Yeah, a lot of that makes sense, Graham. You know, it, uh, you take the easy, low-hanging fruit, right? Freeze GNA, TNE, and all that kind of stuff. You you rally around your customer base, right? Because that's what generates the revenue that keeps you afloat. And in a in a crisis like this, as you said, if the demand's not going to be there, you're burning precious resources trying to carry sales with it, right? Yeah. And and you kind of let productivity drive what you do, and and you make sure that you you continue to focus on making product stronger, potentially, so you come out of it in a better position, right? Because that's what it's all about in the end, right? Product and customers. Yeah, I've certainly encouraged CEOs to review their product portfolios. You know, in the vein of never never let a good crisis go to waste. Sometimes you can get a much more honest assessment of all the different product initiatives in a time like this than you can when you know there's no pressure or there's less pressure on your P&L and cash flow. Yep. And that's a point I'd, I'd love you to kind of speak about a little more, Graham, because it seems to me that that oftentimes as companies are growing, they kind of diffuse focus, right? Because things are going well and lots of projects, pet projects or experiments go on, right? Where you're diverting precious resources and, and times like this are actually can, can be a CEO's best friend when it comes back to bringing focus to the organization on a few things that matter, right? To get through this crisis and actually come out stronger. I completely support that view. And I think you know, every CEO has their strengths and weaknesses. And and I'd say for many of the entrepreneurs that I've worked with, you know, they find it harder to slow down or stop projects than they do to start them. But a lot of companies, almost all companies, inevitably you end up with some with some bloats. A lot of CEOs, again, don't necessarily want to go and tackle when everything's going well. So I think this is a massive opportunity for CEOs to rethink their prioritization and just really aggressively prioritize where they're putting their dollars, even increase their dollars in some areas and reduce in others. But I just feel you have all the air cover you need now to make take whatever actions you feel are appropriate. You know, you kind of get through that first quarter, and then oftentimes you probably need to readjust each quarter after that, right, as you get more data points and and see where you're being successful and where you still might be struggling? Yeah, I'd say two things on that front. I think you have to be honest about the data points, and I think, you know, there can sometimes be a little resistance to you come up with your scenarios and then you start having a debate about whether you're really on your middle case or your worst case. I think you have to be very honest about where you are 
and certainly as a board member, I think that involves you getting into a little more detail than perhaps one one has in the past. And then I'd say, you know, the second thing I've encouraged all of the people, the teams I'm working with is, you know, the reason you have your scenarios is not just sort of a hypothetical exercise and then you pick one and run with it. It's so that you know the series of actions, the menu of things that you're going to do if things take a turn for the worst and you're not scrambling and sort of, oh, well, this didn't play out how we thought it was. So now we're going to have to go back to the drawing board and figure out how we get to scenario three. And you should know what what actions, Hecyon actions, expense actions, whatever they are, supports each scenario so you can seamlessly move ahead and people... You know, I'm all in favor of total, honest, open transparency, particularly at times like this. And so, you know, treat your employees as adults and and explain to them how you're trying to manage the business. And so uh, it's important to make sure that you have the the plans on the shelf ready to execute against on both upside or downside, right? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. You know, obviously you're working with CEOs of, of very successful companies like, like Splunk and Slack. How are they working with their boards, I guess, to manage through this gas? Because it's unique. I mean, you and I went through several recessions. I've been through four recessions, one where, right because of 911. But this is totally different, right? The other recessions, there might have been a quarter or two where you had a little inkling that something was happening. And like you said, you had a little time. This one, there was no time. Yep. And so are, are you finding the CEOs amenable to being aggressive with their boards on being serious about it? Or is it taking them a little longer to try and get their arms around us, I guess? Right. I think it's certainly the companies I'm working with, all of the CEOs have reacted very quickly, very positively. And I think internally, clearly the most important aspect of this is making sure you're communicating and caring for your employees. In fact, I was on a call yesterday, somebody talked about the four C's, which I thought was a good way to remember it, which was cash, caring, communications, and customers. And uh, sorry, costs was the, actually now I've got five, five C's, customers, that would be your fifth. Because I think those are the five, the five you've got to really stay focused on. But anyway, yeah, back to your, your original question, I think, obviously, all companies have a slightly different path right now, I think, you know, depending on which particular piece of the technology puzzle you are trying to solve. And Slack's been public about saying how much demand has picked up since this crisis came upon us, which is good for Slack, obviously, uh, but but not something they would have wished for. I think, yeah, the CEOs have reacted incredibly responsibly. And I think the frequency of communication is higher, and I think it needs to be. Not necessarily longer, but, but definitely we're having more meetings with the directors. You don't want to overload management with another responsibility. So I think we're trying to utilize the materials that they're using internally to talk about what they're doing with their, with their customers and employees. And so I think some of the companies, not all, but some of the companies are sharing with the board sort of their leading indicators dashboard, which is super helpful. You know, just what are they looking at? Not the sort of traditional financial metrics, but website activity, support calls, requests for extended payment, requests for extended billing terms, you know, all of the kind of leading indicators that they think are important to measuring the impact of the crisis. I think if you can share that with the board, you know, there's not a lot of overhead to do that. And it it makes, you know, three months in this world for a board is an eternity. So it's great to have a lot, you know, more frequent updates on what's going on. As as you said, I mean, in times like 
like this or times of crisis, right? People pay attention to what their leaders are doing, right? And the leaders lead by example, and, and those are the true leaders. Can you give a couple examples of, of the kind of communication rhythms some of the leaders are currently in with their employees to keep them informed and, and transparency and stuff, Graham? Ones I'm most familiar with are, are doing either, and sometimes both, sort of Zoom all hands. And clearly, if you're an international company, it's not reasonable to expect people to stay up into the middle of the night. So they're typically doing two all hands in a day. So people can kind of pick and choose which which one they want to join. Uh, CEOs are doing a lot more sort of video communication so people can, you know, just hear what's on the CEO's mind or they may have a, you know, a guest executive talking about their particular area. Clearly, people, I think, want to hear from CFOs in this, in this kind of environment, maybe more than they do normally. Because yeah, the CFO is obviously trying to focus on making sure that the company protects its financial assets and its liquidity position. I mean, they want to hear from, obviously, customers. So a lot of uh, videos from sales leaders. I think a mixture of live meetings where people can ask questions and recorded stuff. And I'm seeing frequency of you know once, twice a week. And I, I think the other thing that's important to keep track of is the impact all of this is having on employees. So I think, again, some of the more forward-thinking CEOs, I think, are looking at doing lightweight surveys of their employees more frequently. You know, just like, how is this impacting you emotionally and physically and mentally? And, you know, I'm hearing stories about people sort of going through these ups and downs with Zoom where everybody's super interactive for a period and then they want to take a break from all the Zooms. And so I think I think you just have to be really smart and have a lot of EQ at this kind of time to make sure you're getting the emotional state of your employees right and and then you know fitting the communications to that yeah it, it, there's a lot of nuance right to to dealing with people in a time of crisis and yeah. being sensitive to that and understanding where you can where you can push and where you can't is is extremely important to help bring the employees with you through the process just like you do with your customers right yes a couple more things. I think you've got to be realistic about productivity. So again, some of the companies I'm working with are trying to get a sense from their employees of how you know how productive are you. You know, if you if you took your old self, you know, three months ago, and then sort of look at yourself today, do you feel like you've lost ten percent of your productivity or fifty percent of your productivity? What what does this new reality do? Some might even be more productive. That's that that, that could be an outcome as well. <laughs> Less meetings. But I think it's important to be honest about productivity because I think if you're not, you know, you jeopardize back to our, you know, earlier discussion of like, you've got to make sure that your customers are the most important thing here. So you don't want to assume that, say, customer support or customer success is working just like it was. You imagine sort of the old world, say, of a customer success role, very different today. Can they really possibly be as productive? So maybe you have to resource that a little more or think about how you can do that differently. Those are some of the things I think you should be thinking about. In addition to, to reaching out and making sure you're understanding what's happening with your employees as they go through this, are some of your CEOs also reaching out to their clients to understand the impact on the clients and what the company can do to help the clients get through this journey? Yes, absolutely. Not just customers. I think, And I think, by the way, assuming you have a diverse base, I think you know it's important to get the pulse of larger customers, smaller customers. So they're trying to they're trying to cover as much ground as they can. So ge- a geographic view as well as a sort of more customer size point of view. So one of my portfolio companies in the, is in the construction industry. And so they're really trying to 
work with the trade organizations as well to sort of understand exactly how they can help, how they can learn more. So I'd say, yes, not just customers, but clearly anyone who relates to that customer journey, whether it's a partner or a supporting organization that your customers might be in. I think the more information you can get, clearly the better. Yeah. So, so the complete ecosystem. Yeah. And in the beginning, we kind of talked about how CAC is king. And some companies obviously today have different business models and, and, and may not charge annually in advance. And you worked with Mark to get Salesforce from a business practice where they weren't charging annually in advance to where you were. Can you share a little bit on how you got through that and how that might help companies today that, that may need to, to frankly do that today to get through their current situations? Yes, we ended up with certainly a good proportion of the customer base on quarterly coming out of the recession. I think there's a couple of things that are important. One is giving people a lot of notice about a change. So I'd say if you're thinking about moving from quarterly to annual or from monthly to quarterly or whatever the, you know, the improvement or the change is, I think it's important to communicate it a long way in advance. And by a long way, I mean, you know, several quarters, ideally. So people have the time to make adjustments to their own cash flows. The second thing is you need to have a transition exception process. And by that, I mean, you know, you can mandate everybody who's on quarterly has got to get to annual. But the reality is recognize that that won't happen magically overnight. And so what we did at Salesforce was there was a there was an exception approval process, which unfortunately ended up at my desk. <laughs> and, you know, I would give I would give people, you know, a transition point. So maybe when they renewed, we'd say, okay, you can have two more quarters quarterly, and then you then you pay six months, and then your annual after that. So I just think showing a little bit of flexibility that gets you to the goal, as long as it's improving and you're not going backwards, it's all going to help cash flow. So I think that process of really moving people to annual probably took two or three years actually to get it like to over 90% annual, Right. but it was always going in the right direction. And I think, you know, an example I literally just heard this morning from one of my companies that sells to Carnival, you can probably imagine what sort of state Carnival Cruises is in. And they were not going to renew. And, you know, the company I work with, you know, made a lot of concessions to help them. Not not so much on price, but much more around payment terms and what they give them in addition. And, and they ended up renewing as sort of being viewed as a critical vendor. I, you know, I think it will do wonders for the relationship. Assuming Carnival comes out the other side of this, I think there'll be there'll be a bond with uh, with this company now for a long time because they, they did a lot to, to help them. And that's again, that's that's being nuanced and listening to your clients on what they need to get through the through the current crisis. And as you said, I think the key is is first of all, uh, you'll never get there if you don't start. But number two, making sure that you have a migration plan, and you do it over time, and you continue to move it in the right direction, and make sure you've got an exception process to to work with people, right? Yeah, and we we were all over the data. There was never a quarter when it didn't improve, and I think that's that's the thing, right? You just got to make sure. You're constantly moving the ball forward. And yeah, if you have to make a few exceptions, that's fine. Just as long as you're achieving the goal over a period, it's going to be, it's going to be a great outcome. Right. As you think about this situation, because you and I both work for several companies that actually came out of these events stronger than when they went in, right? With more focus, with better execution, with more market share and more momentum than the competitors um, when they went into it. 
Yep. What kind of advice would you give a CEO to try and make sure that they're focused on not just getting through the current chaos, but actually coming out in a better position and more competitively uh, in their marketplace? I think that's a series of questions that you have to ask yourself and ask the company. And, and I think, you know, fundamentally, I, I've always thought that the successful companies I worked for the ones that were the ones that really worked hard on prioritization. You know, we talked about that earlier, but I think, I think there's so much energy and resources, frankly, that, that are expended in companies that don't really focus on the vital few. I think you used that phrase earlier. And so that's, to me, first and foremost, it's like, be honest about who your customer is and look at the competitive dynamics, you know, the chessboard, what are the companies that are doing well, why are they doing well, and decide if you need to readjust fundamentally your product or go-to-market strategy. And I think that both are important. This isn't just about product, because I, I do think coming out of this crisis, there'll be some fundamental shifts in the marketplace and the way that business is conducted. That means, you know, obviously to take extreme examples, if you're in, you know, the travel bookings business or something related to the hospitality industry, you're going to have to basically rethink carefully what your product strategy is and what your good market is. I think secondly, keeping your best people is, is, is really critical. And I'd say if you can opportunistically hiring superstar individuals or superstar teams in this environment can really make a huge difference. I, I think that was something we certainly tried to do at Salesforce. There's a lot of startups right now where they're cutting 20, 30%, sometimes more of the headcount. Teams and people are going to shake loose and and you better be there, you know, ready to pick those people up because certainly people and teams can make huge differences. I mean, those are the two that really spring to my mind. Your business model is going to change. And I think, are there ways you can get scale coming out of this without adding the same? In other words, can you reduce your customer acquisition costs and your, you know, become more efficient in your go-to-market? And that's that's a lot more nuanced and probably not my area necessarily of expertise, but I think the smart companies right now are really trying to think about how do I change my product and maybe through that sell it differently and sell it more efficiently and not necessarily rely on the same old you know, direct sales model that we've always, in many cases, enterprise software have, have had to try and rely on. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I mean, I, I think you've got to be ruthless on your on your prioritization. Focus on a few things that really really matter. Make sure you adjust product and and go to market model or other execution areas within the company for what the new normal is going to be because it is going to be different, right? And selectively, you have an opportunity to frankly upgrade your team, right? As you said, there's a lot of talent in the marketplace, and but in today's world with what's going on, there's a lot of great talent that you have an opportunity to pick up and, and actually upgrade your team. Yeah, I think, you know, capital has been so easy to come by for the last, well, pick up time period, five years, 10 years. I mean, it's really been unprecedented, I think, in terms of talented execs and individual contributors at larger companies thinking, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to a smaller startup. I'm going to make a bunch of money. It's all going to be good. And now there's a very new reality. And I think, I think people will look at but their opportunities a bit differently, and that that gives you an opportunity to to secure people you might not have had a chance to do so, you know, a year ago. Also. Right, right, super. Um, as we kind of wrap up, Graham, you know, is there is there anything I didn't ask that I should have, or anything I missed that that uh, another nugget of wisdom or anything you can share? Or 
you know, a couple of areas that are close to my heart. Um, they may not um, be directly related to CEOs, but I think CEOs should be thinking or pushing their CFOs to make sure they've got all the risks covered, you know, in this, in this environment. And, you know, every company to a greater or lesser extent goes through, I'll say, sometimes goes through the motions of, of, of doing a risk assessment. Now I think you've got to get really serious about it. Who are your key vendors? You know, who are your key employees? It, it occurred to someone at one of my companies that if there was a certain person who got the coronavirus, they probably wouldn't be able to make payroll just because they really only had one senior person managing the payroll department. But, uh, you know, you've got to think about single points of failure in a way that perhaps people haven't thought about single points of failure before. And, yeah, just sort of business continuity generally, I think, is just something you've got to get serious about quickly if you haven't done so before. And then maybe my last thing I'd say is, and I mean, this depends whether you're public or not, but clearly, I think if you're a public company, I think it counts with private as well. I mean, you can't go dark on your investors just because there's not a lot of good news. You've got to keep communicating with your stakeholders with with whatever your hypotheses are. I mean, you have to have a plan. You can't have no plan. We talked about that earlier with scenarios, but it goes beyond the financial aspects. I think continuing to communicate with your stakeholders and particularly investors, it's a tough call in these in this kind of environment. But I think it's so super important for for people to continue to do that versus just assuming, hey, I got no good news to tell people, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna give them the, the update because, you know, there's no there's no good news that's gonna come out of this. I don't have the answer, so I don't want to talk to them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I think that's yeah. That's uh, that's super important too. Well, super. I, I appreciate you taking time to to share your insights and experiences with us, Graham. And you know, stay safe and stay healthy, my friend. All right. And you, George. Been a pleasure. All right. Thank you, Graham. Thanks for listening to Building to Last, a short podcast series hosted by OpenView Venture Partners. If you like what you've heard, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to Build for more insights on product-led growth. And. If you're building a B2B SaaS company and would like to talk strategy or fundraising, OpenView can help. Please reach out via email to hello at ov.vc. Take care, everyone.